It is exactly 10 o'clock. Perfect. Perfect Starting time. now, it's good luck. Right? You got 30 seconds to do it. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. Welcome to episode 67. In this episode, we will be covering chapters 41 through 45 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. I emphasize that because there was some confusion last time because we said 45, but I wrote 44. It happens to the best of us. It does happen. So listen, if you have only read through chapter 44, stop what you're doing, go read chapter 45, and come back to us. We will still be here for you. Hey, I accidentally write 44 all the time. <laughs> just weird on, thing on random things just never know when it's gonna happen well my name is chad i'm liz and let's talk about our spoiler policy so our spoiler policy is that we will not be spoiling anything in this podcast past ha- chapter 45 of the way of kings chad has not read this book nope. I have. Yep. We like to keep the the surprises coming for him. So we will not be spoiling anything past that. And that includes pretty much everything in Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. Chad hasn't read any of it. Nope. So we will talk a little bit about Cosmere related things only if they do not spoil plot points of any of the books involved. And on our next book club, we're going to be covering chapters 46 through 51. 46 through 51. So that will be all the way through the end of part three of this book. Ah, gotcha. And things are getting exciting. I know we've been drawing the arrow back very slowly, but I promise it's coming. I felt like a lot of exciting. I felt like a lot of exciting things happened in this section. Yes, yes. We are starting to see the plot move. Yeah. At least for some of the characters. Yeah, correct. I feel like. I mean, not that it was like completely devoid of frustration, but I feel like a lot of the previous chapters, we were getting like a lot of repeated material, like and repeated foreshadowing. And and, like, I get that there was some world building things that were laid, but I feel like he's trying to lay the character beats down by giving you the same character beat like three or four times sometimes. Uh, which can get a little frustrating, but now it's the pace is starting to pick up. And it feels almost more exciting when that happens after a period of not a lot of movement. Would you agree with that? I mean, if I have to pee really, really bad for a really, really long time, then yeah, it feels good, (laughs) you know? It's like, oh, oh, God. I feel like when the story is this slowly and meticulously crafted, when it actually, when things do fall into place, it's really cool. And it's and it's more rewarding than a book where the plot is just racing along the whole time. So for me, it's not even so much about the plot as it is about the stakes. Explain that. It can be difficult to separate those two things for sure. But... 
you can have the plot not necessarily move forward, but you can have the emotional stakes quite high. So, for instance, in the Kaladin flashbacks, which for me are generally, you know, not the most exciting part of the book. Ooh, TN's found another Those rock. are your brand chapters. Yeah, I love brand chapters. I know, but for me. But for, yeah. Okay. Gotcha, I understand. In the last one that we read in this section, you get to see how he tries to save his brother by volunteering for tribute right. and, and and getting into the army. And that was a very kind of, you know, the emotional stakes were high. What's going to happen? What's he going to do? It had very little to do with the actual plot because it happened five years ago. We already knew he was in the army. We already know Tian's dead. So there's nothing kind of moving forward from a plot perspective, but it was emotionally, the stakes were very high. The stuff that happens with Shalon at the end now that's moving the plot forward, but the stakes are what's going to happen to her. Is she, you know she has this deep emotional need and heavy, heavy consequences if she screws this up. But we saw that chapters ago when her actual plot didn't move forward at all. You know, in the in the chapter where she was talking with her brothers and we we're finding out all these guys were coming to visit, and then we're finding out. You know, that uh, Shalon's expecting somebody to steal her soul caster. You know, the plot doesn't really move forward, but the stakes are ramped up. I would definitely agree with you there that we've seen higher stakes finally. But I I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like the slow buildup of these same character beats kind of over and over, in my opinion, pays off when something finally happens because it's heightened the stakes for me. Would you like to get into chapter 41? Yes. Chapter 41 is called Of Alds and Milp. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, please let me know. But I don't know how else you would say that. Yeah. This chapter opens on a very tense scene. Roshone and his son Rillier have been impaled by a white spine, which is apparently some sort of nasty Rosharan creature. Liren is working furiously to save Rillier, but realizes that even with Kaladin's help, there's nothing he can do. He moves to save Roshone, explaining when Roshone protests that his physician's code dictates that he must save the one who has the chance of living. During surgery, Liren has a chance to let Roshone die, but he doesn't, even though it would solve so many of his family's problems. He tells Kaladin that someone has to start caring about life. So what were your takes on this chapter? My first take is actually not about the chapter per se, but it's about the whole section. I thought it was interesting that this section is bracketed in blood. We start out the very first thing, the surgery with Roshan and Relier, blood everywhere. Right. And we end with Shalon, blood everywhere. Nice observation. So that was interesting, yep. Nice observation. The chapter is called Alds and Milp. Of Alds and Milp. Of Alds and Milp. Never find out what happens to Alds and Milp. Yes. That was interesting. That is interesting. Although. So Alds and Milp, I don't think I put it in my summary, but those are the names of two of the townspeople who um, were also injured in the same white spine attack that Roshon and Relier were and in their haste to get the Bright Lord and his son 
to the surgeon, Alds and Milp were left behind. Someone was supposed to go and fetch them. They were severely wounded, and it's assuming that they will have died. But And Liren is waiting for them to be brought, but it, it's assuming that they would have died. Yeah. But they were just completely left behind. Total afterthought. Because the lives of the dark-eyed people is completely irrelevant. So I spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around this chapter name. Why call it Of Alds and Milp? It's a good question. I couldn't really come up with anything. So anyone have any insights on that? I'd love to read them. So we get a couple of interesting character beats in this chapter. First off, I thought it was interesting that we get to see a huge emotional reaction from Laurel in this. She is, she's screaming, she's completely losing her mind, has to be dragged away by the guards. We didn't get to see that reaction with her father's death. Now that's because that happened off page, Mm -hmm. as it were. But I think it's just interesting that we get to see that here. I mean, she says something odd in her, she's just kind of screaming nonsense, but she she says, he was where it happened. We we don't know what that means. Yeah. He was going to grow up to be Alexander Hamilton, but <laughs> alas, he didn't get to be in the room where it happened. Um, and then we also have Liren making this strange decision to tell Roshon why he was going to stop working on his son. Rillier is there. He's He's been gored in the abdomen. His face is half torn off. I mean, he's in very bad shape. Liren is working on him. He kind of realizes pretty quickly that, okay, that this this kid is, there's nothing I can do for him. And he turns to Roshon, who is has been wounded in the leg pretty badly, but he's awake. He's conscious. He can see what's going on. And he starts working on him. And he says, I'm sorry, your son is dead. And Roshon says, he's not dead. I can see him moving. Go save him. And rather than have Kaladin you know, knock him out with the day's water, he stops and he explains to him, well, I have this code. And the code says, I have to see to the most severely injured first. And then after that, I have to see to the younger patient. And then after that, I have to see to the patient who is going to live, who has a chance of living. And like, it's like, why? Why Why kind of go on this little monologue, exp- basically spelling out for this guy that you are choosing to stop working on his son? Because Liren is the villain, and that's what villains do. <laughs> I'm lowering your son into this pit. Yeah. <laughs> Very Painfully slowly. slow dipping mechanism. Yeah, right. No, it's a good question. So, I mean, yeah, in all seriousness, I, I made me wonder if his need to justify himself morally here, he's like, well, I'm I'm, I'm doing the moral thing. I'm following this physician's code and have it validated is a reaction to his guilt over stealing those fears and having to kind of play this, this moral upright, like he's like he's in the right as far as the law and all this stuff for so long. And that's a reaction to that. Yeah, I think so. And and that was sort of my thought on this as well. It it is something that's a little bit annoying about Liren is his constant moral grandstanding when we find out that, you know, he stole these fears from Wistio. It's an interesting parallel with Shallan. It is. Because she has the kind of similar 
reaction to Yasna's behavior when Yasna goes out and is indulging in her vigilantism and she's going on and on about whether Yasna was eth- ethical or moral or legal legally right in what she did and all the time she is straight up st- stolen from her yeah absolutely selfish and for selfish reasons not even for any kind of greater good so yeah, yeah it's, it's a it's a parallel there for sure absolutely the you know and then we have the sort of obvious or the most obvious the biggest beat in the chapter which is where Liren has the option or or clearly ponders the idea of nicking his femoral artery and letting him bleed out on the table and decides not to. And he and Kaladin discuss it afterwards. It's interesting to me, you know, afterwards we get kind of inside of Kaladin's head and he says he would have let Rashon die. He knows it because he says it would have been better for his family. It would have been better for the town. It would have been better for more people. Now, taking out, assuming you believe in God, taking out the sort of spiritual implications of, is there a God? Is, you know, does being moral mean anything, you know, in the long term? Taking all that out. Question, how Cal knows it would have been better. What's interesting to st- to me, about this whole storyline, this whole flashback with Kaladin, are all the unintended, unforeseeable consequences of each of these little actions. So, Liren steals these spheres. Now, the, the thing that's interesting about this is even if he hadn't stolen them, if they had been given into him, he may have had the same thing happen. But... You know, he steals these spheres, and as a result, this guy comes and he has a grudge against him. He ends up getting in an accident where his son dies. So as a result, this guy, because he already hates him, arranges a situation where his son is taken from him. It's like an unforeseeable thing that you never would have been able to guess or protect yourself from. Why would Kaladin assume things are going to be better? If... Rashon, who who came to town knowing there was a problem with Liren, who is related to Sadius, is killed at the hands of the surgeon in question. You think Sadius isn't going to send somebody even worse or come down himself and try him and just find him guilty anyway? So it's just, it's an awful lot of assumptions that he's making here in his moral, you know, morally absolute sort of statement that he makes. One thing that I find interesting about Kaladin's character in terms of the difference between his flashback thoughts and feelings and the current Kaladin is childhood Kaladin has this kind of idealistic view of the light eyes of the real light eyes you know and back when he when wistio is in charge of hearthstone he doesn't really think of him as a real light eyes because he's kind of like this kindly old i picture him kind of a dumpy fellow whatever he's not like a real light eyes and then when roshone comes he's wearing a sword and he's wearing like a 
sort of military uniform. He's like, oh, maybe he's like a real light eyes. You know, so it's this idealized view of what the nobility is supposed to be that we watch slowly get stripped away from him as yeah. he gets older. So I think he's still got a little bit of that. No, like, well, so. if I can just get rid of this guy, things are going to be better for everyone. He's clearly just a bad apple. But this is this is clearly a huge turning point for Kaladin as a character, as a, as a person. Yeah. When he realizes that, no, I, I would be able to kill someone if I thought it was for the greater good. Yeah. That's kind of a huge theme in this book is can you save people by killing? Yeah. And the value of life overall. You know, when um when Liren talks to him about it, it's a neat continuation of this exploration of this issue that started in the chapter called The Lesson, where Yasna goes and kills those men this kind of exploration of moral relativism where Liren starts talking about uh, somebody has to step forward and do what is right because it is right. If nobody starts, then others won't follow. So he's talking about we need to be better than them. And that's just kind of a continuation of what Yasna espouses as her beliefs, which is, you know, people, people will do what is right because it is right, not because of any sort of of you know consequences from any kind of supernatural being Mm -hmm. so i just think it's cool to see those things kind of carried along and there's some neat imagery i like when you said you know it's it's this section that we read is bracketed in blood but this chapter is because it begins with obviously this the bloody scene in the surgery room and at the end when kaladin comes out he's struck by the redness of the sky because it's sunset Mm, good point and um, he says everywhere he looked, the world was red. And that's just kind of was a cool bit of imagery. From a world building standpoint, I just had a note about the white spines that um, that if the axe hound that's pictured at the beginning mm-hmm. of this chapter, if that's their kind of version of cute and cuddly, then their version of terrifying must be truly Absolutely terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. Because the picture of the axe hound looks like... I mean, it looks like a giant grasshopper, but it, it is not something. That, it's not cuddly. It's not like a family pet. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I imagine something that's like a cross between a giant praying mantis and a silverfish. Just. Ugh, yeah. Just incredibly creepy. Chapter 42. Chapter 42 is called Beggars and Barmaids. In this chapter, Shalan and Yasna discuss the morality of the incident in the alley. Yasna turns Shalan loose for the day. Her attempts to use the stolen soulcaster have been unex- unsuccessful, but when she relaxes and opens her sleeping mind, she hears a strange voice that asks her what she is. She has a unique opportunity to search Yasna's room, but finds only hints that Yasna is researching Voidbringers and a place called Arithuru. She spends time with Capsule, and we're all mildly bored while he ups his creepy jam game. She then arranges passage for herself out of Carbranth with the stolen soulcaster. I'm sorry, were you as bored by Capsule as I was in this chapter? Oh, yeah, he's... I mean... He's losing me. Like, dude. I called this chapter Encyclopedia Brown in the Case of the Broken Soulcaster. (laughs) I like it. We begin with Krishna and Arjuna debating morality. Morality, as opposed to rightness or legality, applies intent to the evaluation process. We were actually taking these notes while we were volunteering at like a school <laughs> event, right? So I'm in the middle of reading this section and taking these notes. It's a like a kid's fair type, you know, a, a fair type thing. When 
our 11-year-old comes up to me and he explains that he's going to cheat the system. <laughs> this is great. By going up to the candy wheel, which has 18 slots, and putting his 50 cents down on every single one of them. I'm going to cheat the candy wheel. He's going to cheat the candy wheel. So he's going to spend $9 to get a $2 box of candy. (laughs) And I stopped him. I was like, did you do... Good. So he did good. He donated to the school with poor intent. (laughs) Right? And it happened right when I was... so true. And I was reading this section. I was like, like, go ahead. And then he comes back to us 20 minutes later. He's like... Why did you let me do that? Why did you let me do that? (laughs) Spent $9 on this stupid box of candy. You could have taken me to Walmart. <laughs> I'm like, Sorry, buddy. So yeah, that's an interesting explanation of morality versus legality and rightness versus morality. I thought from a character standpoint, it struck me that it was important to Yasna what Shalon thought of her, even though she plays it like like it wasn't important to her. Um, she makes a point of telling her that for what it's worth, she was trying to do something good with the soul caster mm-hmm. that I think it probably wounded her a little to hear Shalon imply that her intent was evil. Um, and Listen, then right after s- someone's got to stand up to Batman. Right. Um, and then I, I wonder if right after this conversation, she, she tells Shalon she can have the rest of the day off. And that Shalon is surprised because she's never done that before. So it's it struck me that she was probably more bothered by the conversation than she'd let on. Shalon goes back to her room and she's reading and trying to figure out how to use this soul caster. I thought it was interesting. It's the first time I noted it. Well, it's the first time it came up, actually. So she says she got a tip from reading one of these books that humming helps with soul casting. And I thought... The Parshendi sing when they fight. Mm-hmm. Don't know exactly what that has to do with each other at this point, but I'm pretty sure they're connected. So I'm putting a pin in that. Was it while she has the soul caster on that she hears the what are you? I thought it yes, was. Yes, she yeah. hears the what the what are you at some point. Yeah. She's sitting in a room, she's drawing. I f- no, she was drawing the pattern on the rocks. Yes. It wasn't I don't I don't know that this it was with the soul caster, but No, it, it was, wasn't on. That's right. It was not. Yeah. She it was had, every time she lets her mind drift. I, I call it the sleeping mind thing. That's a mm-hmm. even though that's a King Killer Chronicles, but it seems to me that really describes it. Like when her subconscious takes over, every time that she's kind of in a meditative state. She's now hearing this voice or seeing these creatures. Yeah, I mean, it certainly happens when she's drawing. I thought it was interesting that it was while she was drawing the patterns in the rocks. And we talked Mm -hmm. about Tien seeing patterns in rocks and talking Mm -hmm. about them. And then I thought of another parallel. I don't know if this is relevant or if it's grasping at straws, but the Parshendi are marbled like rocks. Hmm. So I just keep seeing through this section all these potential little parallels. They're not they're not necessarily you know locked down incredible evidence, but they're parallels of some sort. So later she goes in, she's finding 
Yasna's notes and she's looking through and reading all these things and I think every single thing that she read was something that is in the beginning of one of the chapters. Yes. Okay. But the one that I hadn't really noticed before was the one that says, never underestimate them because of what you see. And I think, well, who has been underestimated or thought lowly of this whole time? And to me, it seems like the parchment. And it says, you know, and this would tell us not to underestimate them because of what you see. Mm-hmm. So I'm going down the road at this point as we're reading this, I'm like, the parchment are definitely some sort of, they're definitely some sort of relationship to the parshendi that just hasn't been activated. It's like they haven't been pollinated yet by the bees. <laughs> you know, like I'm going down that that's mm-hmm. the road I'm going down. Just leading you where my brain's going at that point. Shalon also starts wondering, you know, when she's reading all this stuff, how does this woman who denies the existence of God believe in void bringers? Right. And it's a good question. You know, uh, how do you believe in how do you believe in the devil but not believe in God? You know, it just something to think about. And then Capsule shows up. Oh, Capsule. And he says, you're not like the other nerds. <laughs> he does. It's literally what he does. Yeah. He's like, most most of these uh, wards of you know, Yasna who are in here, they like to just stay in their books, but you, you are so round. I mean, interesting. <laughs> You're so so and, and Capsule also uh, goes as far as to offer to leave the Ardentia for Shalon. So he's he's stepping it up. Yeah, yeah. He's putting it out there. And then he's like, he's all like, steal a soul caster. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Who would be that stupid? <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be really dumb to do that. I mean, like, like completely ignorant of the consequences. <laughs> I mean, like you've never even heard the word consequence. <laughs> You're stupid. It's so true. And what's interesting is that Shalon, for all her naivete, is she's got this like chewy, nougaty, like ruthless center. You know, so even though she feels a little bit sick, having kind of realizing that, oh, hey, what I just did is probably might possibly cause an international incident and yeah. and affect the entire nation nation stole kim jog il's cavassier that's pretty much what she did that is the equivalent you fucked up son she's like eh, all right gonna roll with it she just rolls with it so she's got this like iron core of like I- i'm doing me i'm doing what i need to do kind of thing it's it's very interesting especially when contrasted like we said before with all of her kind of hand wringing over yasna's activities yeah but this is a good chapter that's sort of an example again of the stakes ramping up even though plot wise nothing really significant happens in this chapter so and it leaves us with some some good questions like you know why hasn't yasna discovered that the soul caster doesn't work you know, and what is this voice thing that's going on? But yeah, yeah, not yeah. too many, I think. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the, the voice thing is clearly a development, so I, I don't want to act like it's completely without plot. It's just in relationship to the other chapters, this one doesn't have that much plot going on. We also kind of note that Capsule is um, probably not in the best standing amongst his order. When he sees the king coming, he like ducks down and hides from him. And he's like, I'm not really supposed to be where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah. I didn't put in. And now that you mention it, I feel like I did not put enough emphasis on that. You know, it was sort of like, um, sort of like Quoth and Denna in the gardens at Mayor Alvaron's. Exactly what it reminded me of. Except it does. I should have put more attention on why does he need to hide? The one thing I did think is I did pay special attention to the description of that ardent that the king was with, because I'm pretty sure that's going to come back around. Mm-hmm. So chapter 43 is called The Wretch. In this chapter, Kaladin revisits the quandary of the bridgeman's fate within the greater context of the things that he has learned. The new bright lord in charge of them is a real ball buster and assigns bridge four to permanent chasm duty. <laughs> Kaladin is beginning to slip back into the wretch he was before when Teft and Sigzel mention the motto of the lost radiance. Life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. The words stir something in Kaladin and he begins to outline a daring plan. He's going to begin training Bridge Four to fight while they are in the chasms and they are going to escape. I only have a couple notes in here. So first, Kaladin asks, why does the Almighty need people to fight for him in the halls? Yeah, and that's an interesting continuation of the things that we've seen explored over the last couple of chapters. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how the th- how thematically things are starting to line up. Yes. Which I which I like. I think that's that's a good sign. You know, when we have Shalon and Kaladin sort of wrestling with issues that are at least adjacent to each other. Thematically yeah. they're, you know, highly highly similar even if what's happening is very different. But again, it does pose a good question. So one, assuming that Kaladin's actually right, assuming that it's not just some story, which it very well could be, given the likelihood of all this history being 100% wrong, but if you assume that that he is correct and, and God, the Almighty, does need people to fight for him in the tranquil and halls, that means really one of two things. One, he either doesn't exist or he's not all-powerful. One or the other. So there's three possibilities. God that's almighty, and this is wrong. No God. Or a God that's not all-powerful. Some sort of demigod, limited God, greater being that's not really all-powerful. Right. Did you notice what Syl said in this about killing? It was kind of a brief comment, but she talks about how she hates killing, but she's helped men kill before. And it's something she remembers faintly. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I do recall that. I didn't didn't put a pin in it. Should have. <laughs> but listen, we... you pin down a windspread, it's like pinning down a butterfly. They're going to die. It's awful. Why would you do that? You don't want to do that. So and I just had a couple notes about Teft and Sigzel. Tell me, listeners, if it's Sigzel or Sigil or if I'm saying that right at all. But Sigzel is how I'm saying it. 
Sigzel seems to know a bit about the Lost Radiance as well. Uh, Teft, obviously, we know he's was part of this group called the Invisagers. They seem to be kind of watching for the return of the Radiance, or at least for people who were able to use Stormlight. So we're not surprised. And and he kind of is trying to like probe at Kaladin a little bit. Kaladin's like all back in EUR mode. He's like, whoa, is me. Everything's terrible. You I've know? seen inside a man. Yes, <laughs> exactly. He's he's gone all Batman. Yeah. And um, Teft is like, you know, hey, how about that strength before weakness, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How about that life before death? What what about that? Kaladin's like, what? And, but Sigzel kind of picks it up and he's like, yeah, that was the motto of the Lost Radiance. And so that's kind of a turning point because as Kaladin walks away and he kind of goes through each one and thinks about what they mean. And that's when he realizes that, you know what, because what, what spurred on this kind of backsliding into Eeyore mode was his realization that the bridgemen aren't supposed to survive. This isn't just some sort of army oversight that, oh, hey, we just forgot to give you guys shields. But no, they're actively being used as bait. Yeah. And that anything he does is going to be immediately yeah. countermanded by Sadius. Yeah, they're they're doomed and everything he's been doing doesn't ultimately matter in terms of their fate. Right. Might help them meet their death slightly more cheerfully, but that's it. But what he decides when pondering these words, especially the life before death, uh, strength before weakness, then the journey before destination, he's he realizes that it's about living before you die. Yeah. And that maybe they might not survive, but he's at least going to make their lives better while they have them. And that's what gives him the courage to outline this last escape attempt. Yeah, and this brilliant light eyes idea of I'm going to leave everybody on one task really sets them up to be able to do this because it puts them in a position. Nobody's going to go down there and watch what they're doing, you know, and, and Kaladin says as much and they could, if they wanted try to find a way out, they could really map it and see if there is a way out. They certainly nobody's going to stop them from doing it. But or they could also use that time to train with spears. And again, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna know. Well, I think it needs to be pointed out as well that how incredibly dangerous the chasms are, and that escaping through them is not really a viable option. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't. Th- I don't think it. I don't think it would be. It was mentioned a few chapters ago that when the high storms come, those chasms fill with water. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like within seconds. Yeah, of course. So yeah. so there's no like, you don't want to be down there well, when a also, storm comes up. Yeah, it, the way the plains are, I don't know why this is, but the water all comes from the east to the west and they're entering on the west side. So, so when the water does hit them there might be a little bit of a delay but it's going to be a wall of water Mm -hmm. like it's you know they're not it's not going to fill up slowly they're going to get hit with a 10-foot wall of water coming at 55 miles an hour like yeah you know they're not going to survive it the other thing i noticed in that same conversation that i thought was interesting is teft makes a joke he says you can't really trust the history of the light eyes i don't believe anything they say the women write all their histories, (laughs) right? And the first time I read it, I took it as a joke, you know, you can't trust a woman. (laughs) The women. I mean, you know, six days out of the month, they fill their ink pens with something totally different. (laughs) 
you know, I don't know. Like, so I just took it as sort of an offhand sexist joke, but it did cause me to think about something. So we are already we are already questioning the historical veracity of anything the Alethi say because of their incredible bias, right? And and the whole to the victors go the spoils sort of mentality, right? But this is, I think this is actually a valid point that he makes, that you have people going out and doing these things and then bringing them back to somebody, telling them what happened, and that person then filtering it. They have a cultural norm of that person filtering and interpreting it themselves. And it's completely valid in, you know, in the women's mind to twist the words put them in any sort of context and this is even aside from the whole undertext thing so any history you get even there, so there's really no primary sources is what i'm saying or very very few primary sources and so you're already starting out with a flawed just even model of scholarship so it's this throw it's a throwaway line but i do think it's a valid point absolutely So chapter 44 is called The Weeping. Yay, another flashback. (laughs) It's a flashback chapter wherein High Marshal Amaram is visiting Hearthstone during The Weeping. Kaladin's family has been slowly spending the stolen spheres in order to make Roshon think that they are being beaten down. And Kaladin only has two more months until he can go to Carbranth. The end is in sight until... Amaram calls for volunteers for the army. By law, Roshon is allowed to choose those conscripted to go if there aren't enough volunteers. He chooses five people. One of them is Tien. Amaram promises to keep Tien out of battle for a few years, but he's resolved to take him. Kaladin, seeing no other choice, volunteers as well in order to protect Tien. He promises to bring him home in four years. But we all know how that turns out. Yeah. So, can we talk about Amaram? Sure. Because first off, his name sounds like an obnoxious men's cologne. <laughs> he sounds to me like that um, that random line from that song, Black Betty. Whoa, Black Betty, Amaram, whoa. <laughs> hey, but, you know. but I think Amaram himself as a person is kind of like that cologne that like high school boys where to disguise the fact that they still haven't figured out how to take a shower every day. (laughs) Like, just put on a little more Amaram, man. It's fine. Every time I go to science class, I walk through a cloud of Amaram. (laughs) Get it for (laughs) $6.99. The counter at Macy's. Lasts for a week. (laughs) But that's just how, how he makes me feel as a person. Like, he cares about... The appearing, the appearance of being yeah. honorable. Well, yeah, it's interesting to me how in this chapter he does act like, and and your whole impression is this is a light eye who's straight up. He's right. you know, but we know from whatever happened between chapter, you know, Kaladin's first chapter and his second chapter that he's just as crooked as all of them. Mm-hmm. We don't know precisely what happened, but we know he's no different. Yep. I love the um, the conversation between Tien and Hasina and Kaladin on the roof. 
we kind of open on this where yeah, Kaladin yeah. goes along and Tien is sitting on the roof watching the rain. Um, he goes up and sits with him and their mother comes up as well. And they're just all three sitting in the rain and their yeah. father comes along and is like, what are you doing up there? And she says, we're feasting on irregularity. Yeah. So it's a, a cute of, little family moment. I have a lot of fond memories of being on roofs. In the rain? Mm, I don't know about in the rain, but I remember when I was like 10 years old, there was this big church near our house, and we used to climb up on the roof and go skateboarding in between the gables mm-hmm. up there. And then the elementary school was like 50 yards away, and we got kicked off of the roof there. And uh, I remember getting a hand job on a roof when I was 14. Shut up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nearly. Fl- I gave a hand job on a roof when I was 14. I did not. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, I nearly fell off a roof in D.C. doing a painting job. I remember being on the roof at Peck House singing Don't Mess Around with Jim with like a bunch of people. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Fond memories of being on roofs. A lot of good times on roofs. Yeah, I do have a lot of good, a lot of good memories. On All roofs. right. The other thing is, he says during the weepings, it's as though the lack of storms left him without strength. And I'm like, this one is for the kids at the back of the classroom. Right. Like, like Brandon Sanderson <laughs> doesn't want you to miss anything. There's not a lot of subtlety. It's all there. It it's depends a- on how fast you read. I, I guarantee if you're if you're tearing through these books, you miss you you would miss more than you think. Oh, and I'm also sure that there will be things that I miss as well. I mean, I'm sure that there are things that will come back around that he probably isn't going to hint at, but this one he doesn't want you to miss. And holy hell, man! Like you're gonna. Oh yeah, it's pounded in there. You're gonna run me over with this fucking foreshadowing van. It's ridiculous. Vroom, vroom, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, it's a little it's a little over the top. I also I worry about Tien. I mean, he's in the he's supposed to be in this internship where he's learning how to, to, to make chairs and he, he's left alone long enough to carve this amazingly amazingly intricate horse. Like what kind of latchkey internship program is this? <laughs> like not that, not that it matters. I, I do have to say, as sad as it was to see Liren's sons get taken away from him, it was also narratively satisfying. Yes, I agree. You know, everything that happened, all this tension built up between them, you know, what's going to happen. And in this section, it sort of comes to a head. Liren, through no fault of his own, loses... Relier and Rashon make some pay. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have this theme of the sins of the fathers coming home to roost kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Also, I'm straight up convinced that the Alethi are just fucking evil. I mean, we have Rashon marrying Laurel, which is gross. Oh my God, yeah. She's was engaged to his son, and I guess he doesn't want to let go of the... Oh yeah, that's political benefit yeah. of having her in the family, and he's gonna marry her. Yeah, that's that's gross. Uh, 
so this is a war. This war that they're drafting people for is called the is called a war. It's called a war of vengeance, even though it's really uh, just a war for resources. But you know, killing and forcing other people's children into a war just for your own pride and money it's it's just straight up fucking evil. Like I don't know how else to say it. I completely agree with you. I mean, absolutely, and we see it over and over again. This is a people who have lost their moral center. For yeah, and all the- that Yasna talks about people doing what's right because it is right, we see at least among the leadership and the nobility, there's a there's a dearth of morality. Yeah, and the real world implications of that in terms of what Brandon Sanderson might be saying about our modern day society are not lost on me. I'm not going to sit in that because frankly, that's not fun, but they're not lost on me. Well, good. <laughs> as long as you got that. I, I got it. I got what he's saying. It's almost like Frank Dune excuse me, Frank Herbert in Dune was trying to tell us something about environmentalism and the Middle East. Really? I, I, don't, I don't know where you got that from. I don't know. Maybe I, I could be wrong. Let's just go on. All the sand, maybe? No, who knows? Go, go. All right, chapter five, 45 is called Shades Mar. Yasna and Shalon are researching Gavilar's account of his meeting with the wild Parshman. Yasna doesn't trust Shalon with her opinions about what or who the Voidbringers really are, and she's determined to find out more information on her own. Shalon tells Cobsel that she is leaving, and man, are his balls blue. <laughs> he obviously wants a hand job, but has to settle for a sketch. The sketch ends up including one of the creepy symbol heads, and Shalon is freaked out. There's an amazing and terrifying scene where Shalon runs around drawing the creatures that are mysteriously stalking her. At one point, the mysterious voice returns, asking again what she is. She's transported to a strange land filled with glass beads where she somehow manages to soul cast a goblet into blood. She slashes her arm open to cover for the blood on the floor just as Yasna bursts into the room and everybody says, WTF was that. Right? There's a lot going on in this chapter. This chapter reads like a Doctor Who episode. It re- it does. Like, right? Exactly like a Doctor Who it, episode. It really does, yeah. So I enjoyed the the anthropological section of the chapter. Like this mm-hmm. chapter overall was really good. Yeah. It was interesting. I, I felt like, you know, Gavilar's, quote, Gavilar's writing, when they, you know, they refer to their terrible gods, right? And he seems to say, and we Alethi who are known for being observant of others, blessed with the open-mindedness of the Almighty himself, and our vast imaginative powers have declared that it is um, um, also a chasm fiend, but, um, but, but really big, but a really big one, <laughs> and also blue. No? Not blue? No, that was Capsule's Balls. Never mind. Okay, not blue, <laughs> but like really crazy huge. <laughs> I forget what the point was of that. Tell I don't have again. a point. The point is that that they're like that they're assuming that this must be just another much much larger chasm fiend because they just don't have enough imagination, right, to assume anything else. 
However, unfortunately, we have that picture of a what is really like a 40-story crab. Right. So, uh, so maybe they weren't wrong. Yes, I think it's really interesting to kind of go back over Gavilar's account because they do just assume that their gods are some kind of great shell yeah. without even really asking any more about it. And that, and that's my point. It's just the arrogance yeah. of their whole approach to this. Right. And it is so interesting to see how the the breakdown between the male and the, the female roles causes a disconnect. And there, there were, I think, male ardents who were scholars on the trip who got some of that information. But the scholarly community as a whole is seems really fragmented well this is also like this would be like if in our history teddy roosevelt led an expedition into the brazilian rainforest and found the yanomami tribe but we had to rely on teddy roosevelt's interpretation right you know and teddy roosevelt brilliant man not really an anthropologist though he's a fucking war hawk right like that's what he was you know but Shalon notes that, and, and Yasna is pleased that she points this out, that Gavilar, while not being a scholar at all, once he met the Parshendi, very quickly became obsessed with finding out more about them. Yeah, and I have to wonder why. And, you know, there's no real clear answer. What was it that caused it to pique his interest? I, I thought for a while, was it, is it just that it suddenly dawned on him that everything he had been told was now potentially cast in doubt and just some sort of intellectual curiosity? I don't know. I don't know if you just get intellectual curiosity out of nowhere if that's not the kind of person you are. Also, it's not rare in our own history for groups of people to come across other groups of people that they did not conceive of existing before. Right. You know. Now, they weren't, they didn't look quite so different, but I don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer for it. I don't think we have enough evidence to have a good answer for it. Right. We know very little about the Parshendi other than the, the scenes that we have seen with them in battle. This is the most information that we have about them, you know, outside of like them fighting other people. So they do talk about their uncanny ability to make music together. They do. And how one can be humming a song completely out of earshot another one is humming the same song yeah and it it almost strikes me that like the parshendi and the parshman this is not a perfect comparison but they not at all in fact but they kind of remind me of bees in this weird sort of way like a hive mind kind of thing yeah that they have that sort of hive mind mentality but also that you can have within the same species just wholly completely different Right. Phenotypes and genotypes, but still be in the same species that Parshman and Parshendi seem to be all cut from the same cloth, but they're totally different from each other. Uh, the other, But they have this uncanny musical ability, which kind of speaks to more of this hive mind type of thing. It, it seems like from what we can tell and we know very little, but it seems like they like their culture is sort of single minded. You know, they don't have that same diversity. Uh, But again, we don't know enough about them. So I'm just, you know, just kind of going off. Well, it doesn't seem like there are very many of them. No, it doesn't. And the other thing that was shocking to me, I highlighted earlier how I was going down this road of sort of thinking of the Parshman and the Parshendi as being sort of 
one being the next logical step from the other. But we get an example here of the Parshendi encountering the Parshman and being like, what's wrong with those guys? Yeah, I think what they say is, where is their music? Yeah, and they just kind of found them confusing. Yeah, there's something they haven't been pollinated yet. And the Parshman did not react to the Parshendi at all. They didn't seem to have any kind of inclination to stop being servants. They just kind of... Yeah, rolled on with it. Rolled on. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and I was very glad that later in the chapter, Shalon notes this, is I found it very much smacked of a D&D game that you had this culture that had like basic drums and mud huts, but they had like these enormous intricate swords. I'm like, Ugh, this is ridiculous. Like if you give a parchment a shard blade, <laughs> he's going to start to sing. And when you give him the shard blade, he's probably going to grow a carapace. And when the carapace is finished, he'll want to grow a beard as well. He'll take one of your gem hearts. And then he'll want a mirror so that he can braid him into his beard. And when you say, hey, where'd you get those gem hearts? He'll explain that property is a violent and barbaric notion. You'll say, give me back my gem hearts. And he'll start humming. You'll go and get your army and thousands will die. And you'll say, you know, uh, maybe we should talk about this. And you'll sit down at the negotiating table with your king. He'll want to see the king. When you introduce him to the king, he's probably going to bring a few of his friends. And chances are, if he gets close to the king, he's probably going to summon a shard blade. <laughs> that was beautiful. Well done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Nice. Yeah, they, they have elaborate steel weapons, but their clothing and other tools are crude. And we've seen that before. Yeah, yeah we saw it in my D&D campaigns when I was 13 years old and all my orcs had magic swords. Okay, also in the prelude of this book. Oh, okay, I mean, fine. Okay, fine. Right. right but whatever. yes, that too. <laughs> so a couple of other notes. They talk about voidish symbols. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of like voidish as a language. And I'm like, that is so metal. It's yes. so metal. So metal. I want to have some. I want to have a leather jacket with voidish symbols on the back of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Also, a couple things from from Capsule. Uh, he says the Dawnbringers were healers, and then he says kindly spren sent by the Almighty. Uh huh. Yeah. Why are you closing one eye? Don't close one eye. <laughs> Another part I thought was interesting in the Capsule conversation is Capsule says, but I've gotten in trouble for you. And Shallan's like, I didn't ask you to. <laughs> Damn straight, girl. You don't owe him nothing. He's looking at you all doe-eyed. Yeah. Like, that's that's on you, man. I didn't tell you to do that. <laughs> yeah, Shallan is, it's, it's interesting here. And I love it because... It's kind of a subversion of what you would expect, you know, handsome, young Arda, and he's, you know, you see this little relationship budding, and you think you know where it's going, like, oh, it's going to be this whole thing, and then she's kind of like, eh, I don't think I'm that into him. Yeah. Eh, I mean, I like yeah. studying, and yeah, he's okay. He brings jam, but... I like jam. <laughs> 
Yeah, he, I she just kind of dug it. She seems more into the food than she does him. But she's not unmoved by him. No, I mean, she, she likes him, but she, she doesn't likes, yeah, yeah. fall into this. No, no. This, he's the one. She blah, likes blah, the blah, attention, blah. but when he hits on her, not only does she blush, but she says at one point that her heart goes a little pitter-patter, but she knew that nothing could come of it, which I took as more of a just an intense pragmatism on her part, which we've seen from her in other areas as well. Yeah, well, and not only that, but when he when he says, I'll leave, I'll leave for you, yeah. I would leave the Ardentia for you, she's like, what? I don't know him that well. Like, she's not like, like oh, he loves me, you know? I have yeah. so many, especially fantasy novels, I feel like the, the young female Lee would just be like, oh, like, oh, I'm swimming in your eyes or blah, blah, blah. Together we'll you know, and she's kind of like, I mean, you're nice, but I, we've never talked about anything important. Well, you he's know? kind of a, he's kind of a tool. He's kind of a tool. I liked him at Almost, first, but now I'm He's kind of like, a Jordan Catalano. I mean, yeah, come he's, on. He's not real bright. Yeah. He's not real smart. He's not. Sorry, Capsule. I'm, so, I'm sorry. He's just, he's just not. Three the, out uh, of 10. <laughs> Two thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> Would not come back. Would not recommend. Would not recommend. So the whole scene with her drawing him, you know, when we go into that scene, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, here it comes. You know, right. you, you know, something's going to ha- happen. But I didn't expect that to happen. Like, was that amazing? That and, was like awesome. creepy. It was super creepy. And like. So even when I went back and read it the second time, you know, when it gets to that intense, like I tend to read faster and pick up the pace mm-hmm. and not notice as much. So when I went back and read again, I'm like, all right, slow down, read it again. I read it the second time. Nope, just just tore yep. through it. So I had to go back and read it a third time yeah. to like digest and try to really absorb all the things. But but a badass scene, the, the moment that got me was when she's finally backed in the corner in her bed. She draws the hand yes. reaching out for her. I'm like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, something's going to grab her. There's mm-hmm. another part of me that's like, nothing's going to happen. She's losing her goddamn mind. Right. But then she reaches out and touches it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> that that so creepy. Was a third option I did not see coming. <laughs> and I liked it. Yeah. And, you know, she falls into this other world and she's swimming in null spheres. Hmm. The same thing that Seth gave to Gavilar. Or, I'm sorry, that Gavilar gave to Seth. Right. Well, she's swimming in dark glass spheres. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't know if they're spheres that are full of dark stormlight. I'm telling you what they Yet are. Yet to be established. I'm telling you what they are. So yeah, what do we think about the other world where she, I guess, figures out how to soul cast? I think it's like the void. So she's, she, she everything pops, everything around her pops into tiny dark glass spheres. There's a black sky and a white sun with little flames hovering around her. And she falls into an endless dark sea of the little beads. It's the null. The void. I mean, I don't know. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just throw, throwing it out there. But it, I did not get the first time that I read it 
when you know she this second voice comes in and says, "Do you want me to change?" Like I did not get that that was right. the goblet. Like I didn't. Right. I didn't understand what that was the first time I read through it, so I was very confused. Yeah. When it just melted, and she was like, "I soul cast," but I yeah. didn't. You know, I was like, "What the hell is going on?" Like I didn't. Mm-hmm. It was a. It was awesome, but I didn't really understand it, so I had to go back again and be like, yeah. "Oh, I see. Okay." Yeah she kind of reached out in her stupor and got a hold of something. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's difficult to deny that she soul cast, but that's not the way that Yasna is doing it. Right. That's definitely not what we've seen. Um, Yeah. Uh, You know, it's a very, so what she's experiencing is, is different and you have to think, okay, so what is unique about her? So the only thing that I can figure that I that I know of that's unique about her at this point is that she both has a soul caster and a shard blade. Hmm. And she says, uh, wait a minute, I, I saw these guys before I stole the soul caster, so it can't be related to the soul caster. But she still had a soul caster at that point. She it was a broken one, but it was a soul caster nonetheless. So she's been traveling with a soul caster and with a shard blade. And these things start showing up when she finally kind of gets settled in one place. So, um, well, not only that, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure she is beginning to summon the shard blade in this scene. Correct. She stands up on the bed. She's kind of like at her lat when she reaches out, she kind of reaches without looking and she feels something yeah. standing there. She jumps up on the bed yeah. and she's like, oh no, I, I'm never going to use that. And then she's ready to anyway. She's that yeah, yeah, scared. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. she is beginning to summon the shard blade when all this kind of happens. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So what all that means, I don't, I don't know, but I would imagine she's the only person on Roshar that we would know of who would have both a soul caster and a shard blade. I don't know. That's a good point. Well, the Ardents don't have shard blades. Correct. And other than the Ardents, Yasna's the only other person with a shard, with a soul caster that we know of. Right. That we know of. Well, the only last note that I had that was kind of back when she was talking to, to, to Yasna, um, was about Erethiru. Mm, or yeah. Erythiru. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I still can't figure out how to say that. I think it's Erythiru. So, Erythiru. That's what I... Oh, that's, that's pretty. What yeah, I, I get it. Erythiru. Yeah. So that just is a city, the name that keeps getting mentioned. It does. And another thing that um, Capsule says is a myth when he is doing his little sand plate trick, Yasna comes in and asks if he can do it, make it, make it become the pattern or the yeah. the plan for Aerithero. And he says, that's a myth. She still seems to be looking for it because it's mentioned in her notes. And when Shalan asks what it is, Yasna says, it was the center of the Silver Kingdoms, a city that held 10 thrones, one for each king. It was the most majestic, amazing, and important city in the world. But then she will not tell Shalan anything else and um, sends her off back to her studies. Also that the Voidbringers were the embodiment of evil and they were fought off 99 times. Yeah. I don't know if that's significant. I mean, I do, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But there it is. And that's it. That's what we've covered. Man, that was a good section. It was a good section. It's going to keep getting better. 
Yeah, that was enjoyable. I do feel like instead of being on chapter 45, we should maybe be on like chapter 25. Right. Like a lot of the first 20 or 30 chapters could have been really cut out. No, no. You have to build it up. Uh, You You have to build it up. I'd like to think of myself as a patient reader and somebody who doesn't mind digging into something and letting it grow and happen. Maybe I'll change my opinion later in the series. I still feel like there are just there are so many layers upon intricate layers that don't pay off for a long time. And I know I keep saying that it's probably really frustrating, but every time I read this, I find another what I thought was kind of a background character that was actually another character like 2000 pages later. And you're like, holy crap. And then you have to go back and read that part again. Uh, yeah, it, it actually, I don't find it more frustrating. I actually find it probably helps me to get less frustrated when you say that and remind me of it because it reminds me, hey, there's a reason here. Chill out. Just go with it, bro. Just go with it. Just go with it. Sit back and relax. Sit back and relax. Grab some lube. <laughs> For the record, <laughs> you went there. It's late. We ha- we're going to get to questions. We're going to get to predictions. But first, I want to ask you, what is Liz reading now? Um. So I I have not been reading anything else right now. Well, I've been noticing that you've been spending an awful lot of time with your phone about six inches from your face watching some sort of television show. Yes. Yes, I got sucked into uh, Iron Fist and so I've been watching that every spare minute. But it's so it's it's been good, but I it hasn't left me time to read anything else. You know, I didn't watch it when it first came out because a lot of people told me it was terrible and I I just didn't have time for a terrible show at the time, so I didn't. But then I watched Defenders, of course, and I liked the character in Defenders. And then I people told me that season two was better, so I was like, "Well, I'll check it out and see if, if it sucks." Um, and and I liked it, and it was really good. And then like the last episode was like really really good, and I got really I was like, "Man, I want more." So um, so now I'm watching season one, and it's um it's bad. <laughs> But it's been interesting watching season one after season two because it's kind of like like watching a good friend get really obnoxiously drunk. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, he's not usually like that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to like, I want to take Iron Fist season one home and like let it sleep it off on the couch. <laughs> Give it a cup of coffee. Take it up for a burger in the morning. Like, Sorry, we're going we're gonna to get through this. Okay. Let's. All right, don't call your ex. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still enjoying it because I I know that it gets better, but but it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, so that's what I'm doing right now. I've been trying to read the Blade itself uh, by Joe Abercrombie. Trying. Well, um, just the way my schedule and this reading has worked out, uh, I've been getting through the readings later in the week. Usually I'm done by, you know, by Monday or Tuesday. And then on the rest of the week, I'll read whatever second book 
I'm in. But for the last couple of weeks, the way it's worked is like one week I'll have time to read and then like the next two weeks I won't. And then I'll forget everything I read and I'll have to start over. So I've started yeah, the book it itself over three times now. Oh, you're going to love it when you get into it. Though. So, so I think it's up your alley. I, um, I've heard some contrasting opinions about it, but um, I read a short story in the Rogue series by Joe Abercrombie that I really liked. I mm-hmm. liked his writing style, so I figured I'd give it a shot. So Yeah, you're going to love the Bloody Nine. So in... Yeah, in, you know, five or six months, I'll tell you what what I think about it. I can't wait. So so we put out on social media, uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, hey, we're going to be recording, send us your questions. And we got a ton. We did. I'm also going to roll into this some other questions that kind of popped up during the week. So it's not all from the same post, but I wanted to go through and read these questions and answer them as best we can. So Daryl, Daryl Mansell, who is the host of the Paprika Network podcast. Hey, Paprika. Who just hit a very large milestone. Congratulations. He says, who is your least favorite character? Of the characters we've read so far, I'm assuming. I I mean, I guess it would have to be. Like, if you tell me, it's Kaladin. Like, then I'm going to know he does some really right, fucked up later. Right, yeah, right. so like... No, I mean, I, I think that we, we have to all hate... Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to say Sadius. I'm not. No. I mean, he's a total tool, but he's interesting. I'm going to have to say Capsule. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> he's so boring and just... And just blah. For me, there are two choices. I had to think about it, though. And it's it's tough to choose between Rashon. Oh yeah, Rashon is pretty terrible. And Elicar. Really, you don't yeah. like Elicar? No, no, I have a real problem with Elicar. I have a real problem with Elicar. I, I, if you ask me, if you asked me earlier in the day, I'd have told you Elicar. If you'd ask me, if you ask me now, I say Rashon. Ask me tomorrow, I'll probably say Elicar. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, re, I mean, Rashon, it's obvious, but with Elicar, his just dude, bro, like you know, we're just gonna go to war to avenge my father, uh, and we're just gonna keep doing the same stupid things without any regard to the actual results of what we do, like is just incredibly frustrating and so many of the problems that we see in this society overall point back to him now i'm aware that it's not like he instituted these you know this he's carrying on the tradition that's been you know perpetuated by all the kings before him i i get that but he's the guy in charge his father was clearly doing things a different way and trying to take the the country a different way and he's just like Fuck that. I'm going right back into stupid dude bro mode. Stupid dude bro mode. Yeah, so yeah, yes. so right now he's my he's my least favorite character. All right. Solid answer. So on Twitter, Caleb, who is at cable guy, excuse me, cable underscore guy eighty nine said, How excited are you to be two episodes away from the sex number? <laughs> Yes, I've so been thinking about that. Have you? 
it didn't even cross my mind until like a day or two ago and i, I was like i was like oh no do we do something i was like are the- we gonna be able to get through that episode <laughs> uh yeah i don't i don't I, i'll be honest I, i'm feeling a lot of pressure <laughs> i'm feeling a lot of pressure to perform I, I, I'm finding myself in an <laughs> awkward position. Oh, it's the worst of all the positions. <laughs> right? Nobody my, actually enjoys that. My thought was we we go really dirty in episode 68, and then we announce in episode 69 that we're doing away with our explicit tag, and we're, go- <laughs> we're going clean. Well, that would do away with the pressure. I just also thought, how do you defy expectations? Well, you do it that way. That's how you do it. Mm. But now I've told you, so I don't don't know. Um, Staying in a mode of sexuality, uh, Ian James Crone says, any thoughts to Shallan's sexuality? He says, the hints are often overshadowed by the pseudo-murders. Talking about what happened in last episode. So I think in general, and, and if you haven't read a lot of Brandon Sanderson, this will become more apparent. He doesn't write a lot of, I mean, there's romance, but there's not sexual content in his books, mm-hmm. pretty much any of them. It's all very like subdued in that yeah. area. That's just his personal mm-hmm. preference. So it is it is very subtle. I think, you know, what I took it as in, in Shalon and Capsule's relationship that she is attracted to him um but she's again just not not the type of person that's going to fall into a relationship or fall into head over heels in love with someone without knowing them that's how i took it as well i feel like not that shallan doesn't have some failings she certainly does but i think in that regard she she uh has kind of a good head on her shoulders she's not like the guy who finally gets laid in college and then wants to marry the first girl he, he beds down with. Mm-hmm. Like, that, you know, it's just not, I think, in her, I think she's strong enough willed that she enjoys the attention, but she's not going to make a stupid decision over it. But I do think she's attracted to him. I agree with that. Brian McClure says, if you were Liren, would you have saved Rashon? Oh, I mean, me personally, absolutely. Yes, I, I think I, I'm down with the, I think Liren did the right thing. Yeah, I and do And that if well. you decide yeah. that life is precious, then you have to extend it to all lives. Yeah, I, I think so as well. I, I don't, you know, I don't think that, I also don't think that you get yourself out of a messed up situation that you may have caused by stealing something by ramping it up and escalating to murder. Yeah. You know. So yeah, to me that's that's fairly fairly uh clear cut. Uh also Brian says, "Do you believe in Shalon's view of the lesson, her ideas about morality versus what's right versus what's legal?" So, yeah, I I think it's pretty well said and I think it's pretty a pretty solid uh, philosophical stands i guess to have but yeah i think i would agree with her i i do as well i I think it's a well-reasoned explanation and it makes sense to me it sounds like something that came from somewhere i'm not a 
not you're so not a philosopher up on my philosophizing, but uh, that sounds like a classic philosophical stance. Maybe someone could tell me which one it is. <laughs> Brian also says, "What are your thoughts on the Parshendi's reaction to the Parshman?" Which we kind of already went over. Uh, that that was sort of a chink in the armor for me because I was getting a little tinfoily about the relationship between the Parshman and the Parshendi. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was I was going a little bit nine eleven truther with that angle, <laughs> and uh, you know they know they you know and. Uh, Clearly, that seems to not be the case. So it took a little wind out of my sails, so to speak. So I think I'm just a little more confused about it, you know, for my part. And I don't think you can answer that. No. I will say, too, um, that we got into kind of an interesting discussion on the Facebook group page um, that was started by Katrina Nudson about the fact that the Alethi don't seem to have a whole lot of information about the Parshendi. Yes, she says, does it seem strange the Alethi are several years into this war and know nothing about their enemy? My take on that is we think about this conflict and we think about conflicts that we have in our history where, okay, say, you know, the the U.S. goes to war with Germany. It would be crazy if we didn't know anything about Germany or the Germans. Okay, but that's presupposing that we have access to like German people who are non-combatants. So the Parshendi are, as far as we know, very small in number. And the only, there aren't like Parshendi villagers running around that the Alethi can go interact with or ask questions of. Basically ever since, so they sat down, they had like a a few week powwow, they sit down to sign a peace treaty and bam, they, out of the blue, hire an assassin to kill their king. And then they take off. And then that's it. That's the only contact that they've had with these people other than trying to kill them and and be killed in return. So I'm not sure. So I think that there probably is, there are scholars who are trying to put together what information they have, but I just don't think that they have access to any of the Parshendi to find out anymore. So I, I spent a long time thinking about this one as well. And I started out on the side of saying it's a, it's absurd that they don't know more. And the more I thought about it, I started comparing it to A Song of Ice and Fire. And I thought one of the things that makes that book so great is that you, you get to sit on both sides of the war and see both sides of the conflict and why each of them is taking a valid stance. And, and it puts you in the middle of this conflict conflict and you 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 don't want either side to lose you know and it it makes it emotionally wrenching and i thought well that's just a better job and then i remembered oh wait in a song of ice and fire we also have the others that we know really almost nothing about yeah you know and they're going to be the ultimate or one of the ultimate anyway big bads right Mm -hmm. so it's like oh okay so this is not really all that different you know the Lannisters and the Starks are more like Sadius and Dalinar mm-hmm. and the Parsh- Parshendi are more like the, the others. others right yeah and then I thought about again in our own history like Rome fighting the barbarians you know and not really understanding but they they definitely understood a lot more about 
the barbarians that they were fighting than these guys know about the Parshendi. I am starting to come more on the side of 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 your stance here that they really don't have a lot of access. They're so completely different. They do not appear to have other allies that you can go talk to to learn anything about them. So it's becoming less frustrating. But what is, to me, the most frustrating thing about this whole conflict is the absolute shitstorm stupid strategy that the Alethi are employing. There's no actual strategy to win this war. It's just ridiculous. And even though they don't know anything about these people, they're not making much of an attempt to know anything about them. You mean to tell me they... I I understand this would be extremely difficult. What are you doing over there? So, y'all, I I took a a photo of Chad because I'm going to post it later. He's very into what he's saying. He's also holding a giant inflatable hammer that says puppy power on it. And he's and swinging, swinging it emphatically it at me. Just so you know, just so you get a picture of how how strongly he feels about this. I'm sorry, continue, please. <laughs> so it would be difficult, but at some point in the last six years, they could have found a way to capture a Parshendi. Well, that's a good point. And I think it comes down to, so I guess the main question is, yes, that is frustrating. Absolutely. And it is a terrible well, tactic. And I have another point, but go I'm ahead. I'm sorry. No, you finish your point okay. first. But also that they're not really attempting to actually win the stupid fucking war. Like, you don't win the war by hunting for great, you know, for gem hearts. Especially, I mean, okay, I understand in the beginning you thought, okay, this is going to be a resource thing. We're going to starve them out. Well, five years ago, you should have realized that that shit ain't happening. You know, and you know where, or at least you think you know where they're sort of based out of, and you have made no effort to attempt to take it from them. You would, e- even if you couldn't outcompete them for resources, you should at least be applying constant pressure to their to the tower, not showing up once every couple of months when there's a gem heart to be contested. It's just, it's ludicrous that they would think that this is how you win a war. It's, and this is why Elicar to me, is the worst character. So what it comes down to, and I think the, the question that's kind of asked here is, is this poor storytelling or is it this part of the culture? Is this, is this just bad writing? I don't think it is. I think it's just a frustrating part of these people. So I, and I agree with that. Um, I, I, I agree that it's frustrating. I also think that it makes sense in the story that this is how these people would wage this war because they are a people who only very recently became a nation. So you have this nation of like pseudo, let's say city states with their own little kings, they only just get united under one kind of high king and he gets killed. And then they all march off to war together. But 
So, so what, and it's, it's outright stated that the high princes are not interested in winning this war. No, it doesn't. They're, they're yeah. not interested. Yeah. They, they, none of them want to, well, none of them trust each other enough to do any kind of joint assault together. And none of them are willing to put themselves out there, make themselves vulnerable enough to actually go to the Parshendi home base. And they think they're profiting from this war. They are profiting from this war. You know, there's no other there's no other place in the world that has gem hearts this big. So they absolutely are making themselves incredibly wealthy. In fact, one of the concerns that Dalinar raises to Adolin at one point is what's going to happen at some point, our entire economy is going to change. Yeah, absolutely. These things that have been so prized and sought after, all of a sudden, they're becoming really plentiful. Like what that's... that's, Yeah, it's going to fundamentally... It's going to have consequences. Absolutely. So, but no, none of the high princes are thinking outside of their own self-interest. They're only thinking about their own pocketbooks, their own um, rise to power. All of them are basically biding their time until something happens to Elokar. And the only reason probably none of them have outright tried to oust them him yet is because they don't think that they would be better off. So that's where you've got, and I think it's a deliberate commentary on some of our current politics, you know, that we've had in the in the 20th and 21st century um, uh, about modern warfare, you know. The, the one part of it that's still frustrating to me, as much as I completely agree with what you're saying, I wholeheartedly do. Shake your hammer at me again, so I know how wholeheartedly <laughs> I you agree wholeheartedly with me. Wholeheartedly agree with you. <laughs> I'm swinging my big red hammer at you. <laughs> my big red-headed hammer. <laughs> but, but there's nobody who can really come alongside Alakar and explain to him the situation that he's in. I mean, da- other than Dalinar, who's been trying to do it the whole time. Well, Dalinar's been trying to do it the whole time. It's his uncle. You would think he would have more faith in him. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he's also going mad. So that makes it... But there's nobody else who has any sense about what's going on. Well, I imagine that's why Dalinar wants Yasna to come back so badly. Uh, yes, I absolutely think that's a part of it. And I do think this is a society that selects high princes that are the douchiest, the <laughs> most self-indulgent, yes. the most self-concerned. And so there's just less, like they just do not reward in their society people who think deeply and broadly about greater societal issues. They, they just don't prize it. Yeah. So I don't think it's bad writing at this point. Well, I'm glad we can agree on that. I'm 65%. It's not bad writing. Eric Algier says, how did Liz convince Chad to start another unfinished <laughs> series? Did Chad know that only three of 10 novels had been written? No, <laughs> I did not know that. You know, I may have said, hey, the third book's already out in this one. <laughs> Man. I don't need to mention how many there are going to be. I mean, here's the thing. Brandon Sanderson it's said over and over, I'm sure he's sick of hearing it. He's a he's a he's a fast writer. He's a prolific writer. He is. Which is part of why I didn't worry about it too much. Right. I did think that there were gonna be like five books. 
I did not know that there were going to be 10. You didn't realize the commitment you were making. No, but listen, that's on me. I also thought that The Gentleman Bastards was only going to have four books. I thought that... You know, I'm going to be honest. I thought that too until pretty recently. So, so I thought The Thorn of Emberlane was going to be it. Yeah. You know, so I was like, all right, great. You know, third book came out a few years ago. We'll get into this one. If it takes him a year or two to get the fourth one out, ah, who cares? It's going to take him seven years. And then there's three more books. <laughs> so, no, I didn't quite realize what I'm getting into. But at this point, I, I think we just read every unfinished series and then wait for somebody to start writing the conclusions. I mean, I, we just become the unfinished book series podcast. That's just what we do. We write it out. You know what? We have a shtick. <laughs> We're sticking to it. <laughs> Felicity asks, anybody else think that Yasna knew that Shallan was going to steal the Soulcaster? She actually wrote a very long post with a lot of different points in it, but I wanted to include this sort of in the questions. Oh, that's right. I'm looking at you, but you can't answer. Yeah, that's one that would kind of be giving away if I, if I yeah. answered. I, I mean, I have been back and forth on this one i'm going to say no but i have been in that camp i've spent a lot of time in that camp thinking she knows Mm -hmm. she knows but i think we have this tendency when we we encounter really smart very wise characters who seem to know a ton of crap Mm -hmm. in a book to assume that their knowledge is limitless Mm mm-hmm and I just don't think that's fair to put on anybody, especially a fictional character. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. There's enough pressure in trying to stand out in this whole cast of, you know, other fictional characters. I don't think we need to put that on her. So so I'm going to say no, but, I, but I've spent a lot of time on that side, so I, so I get it. She also said one of the other things I thought was interesting. She said, I think that Kaladin's mom is somehow related to the the people from Shinovar because of some of the abilities that he is showing and also because of Tien and his appearance, his childlike appearance and Mm -hmm. a smaller size and things of that nature. So I thought that was an, I thought that was interesting. I like the line of reasoning. I had, uh, I had not put that together. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for predictions? Yes. Okay. I am more convinced than ever that the Stormfather is a Spren. Okay. And that the High Storms themselves are somehow Spren-related. Okay. I either think it's related to Spren or the Voidbringers or maybe both. I don't know. It's certainly certainly not a theory that I have, you know put in the jello mold and put in the refrigerator and waited 12 hours for it. It has not all gelled together yet. Still quite soupy. But but I definitely think that the Stormfather's a spren. I think the Parshendi's terrible gods are chas- giant chasm fiends. Which I think we've, you know, that's fairly benign. But I think the chasm fiends, the giant chasm fiends, are at least related to Voidbringers, if not Voidbringers themselves. This one's a little bit of a conflicting one because we saw Voidbringers in the prelude and they were described very differently than this. But that doesn't mean that they're always the same or there's only one type or, 
you know, that that's the only sort of manifestation of that. So Mm -hmm. um, they might not be the classic Voidbringers, but still be somehow related. And that's kind of where I'm going with it. Erethiru is lost. I think it's related to the tower. Okay. I think that's where it is. And I think that what is happening is that, see, the Voidbringers took over the Tranquil and Halls. And I think in Erethiru, there was some sort of portal, some sort of connection between Erethiru and the Tranquil and Halls. And I think that is why the Chasm Fiends and the Gem Hearts and the Parshendi and the Voidbringers are all coming from that era. Because I think it's related to that. Is that it? No. Okay, keep them coming. (laughs) Your poker face has gotten so much better as a result of this podcast. I know, I'm clenching my butt cheeks so hard. (laughs) (laughs) We, uh, (laughs) I used to be able to tell when you were uh, lying to me, but I can't anymore. (laughs) Maybe I don't want to keep doing this podcast. Good for our marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, this is a softball. Less tinfoily than my last couple. I think that Ardent, with the long, narrow face, who is talking to Teravangi, and I think is mm-hmm. going to be a character who comes up later. Okay. And then I think we have to now talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the self-cutting, blood-covered elephant in the room that is Shallan mm-hmm. and Yasna discovering her and what's going to happen. I don't want to make a prediction about it, but I... I'm not going to be a chicken shit. I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction yeah, t- about it. Yeah, right? you have to. So so I don't have a lot of confidence in this, but I'll say it anyway. I think Yasna is going to find out about the Soulcaster, but I don't think that she will be able to guess at the proper motivation. Hmm. And I think that's how Shallan's going to get out of this without being killed, is that Yasna's not going to... She'll find it, but not be able to guess at why she did it. I also think that Shallan is going to end up being separated from Yasna. Whether she gets exiled, sent away, I don't know. But I think at least for the time being, that's the end that's going to cause those two to split. Don't know the exact dynamics of how it'll happen but I think those two are not going to be spending a lot of time together in the near future. For all I know, the whole second half of the book is nothing but a buddy cop film. Uh, <laughs> Yaz and Shalon running around. I want to see that so, so bad. Each one's got a soul caster. They're just, you know, they're just turning mofos into flame everywhere. <laughs> Did you look at that girl? Flames! Did you oh. grab that waitress's ass? Fire! <laughs> I want to see that so bad. That would be good, right? That needs to happen. That would be good. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. That is our homepage. You can find us on Facebook at the D&D podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. You can find us on Twitter at the D&D podcast and on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast. 
You can also check us out on SoundCloud if you want to look up the Duke and Duchess podcast there as well. If you have any questions, uh, you can email them to advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. We look forward to getting your questions. We'll answer them. We may not give you good answers, but we will answer your questions. And we love getting reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Google Play Store. We've gotten a lot of good ones over the last couple months. Uh, Please come and find us on our Facebook group page. That has been such a fun community. It really has. And you can find that on facebook.com backslash groups backslash the DND group. You can also search for us on Goodreads. Yes. We have um, just had a page started there moderated by Ian and um, yeah, just search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group. And I think you have to answer a question to get uh, prove you're not a spam bot. Um, Yeah, absolutely. But you can message us for the, any help getting into that as well. I'm interested if other folks, I haven't looked into this, so this is completely off the top of my head. I'm interested in if other people can invite people to our Facebook group page. Because one of the things about that is I can only invite people who are friends or if I know their email address, which is kind of limiting when, you know, you're trying to do something along these lines. So I'm curious, uh, let us know, listeners, if you're able to invite people. And if not, we, if not, and people want to. You mean like the Facebook page? Yeah, the group page. Yeah. I'm interested. I, I just because I I'd have to log in as somebody else to see if that option's there for them. I mm-hmm. suspect that it's not. Um, but if people th- are interested and would like to do that, uh, I have an idea. We might be able to find a workaround. So let me know if you're interested in that. Anything else? So yeah, keep pimping us out. We appreciate yeah, the word yeah. of mouth. Um, we had a couple members uh, recommending us on another Facebook fantasy group page. That was pretty that was, awesome. That was pretty awesome. We love that. It, that blesses our thank souls. You, and, uh, yeah, really thank you that. for that. And uh, yeah, that's about it, though. We look forward to interacting with you this week. So next week, we will read chapters 46 through 51. Yes, sir. And I'll try to remember that when I put the blog post up. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.